2 Samuel 24, I'll be reading, I broke it up a little, so verses 1 to 4, then 10 to 18, and 21 to 25, just cutting out some of the explanatory bits, but the whole chapter we will be talking about. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as, as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please, let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite. And Arona said, Why has my lord, the king, come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arona said to David, let my king, let my lord the king take up an offer, or sorry, take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and the threshing sledges, and the yokes for the of the oxen for the wood. And this, O king, Arona gives to the king. And Arona said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arona, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God. That cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. And so ends second. Now, back in chapter 21, we saw that judgment had been brought to Israel um, because of the sin of Saul. And now, this final chapter, remember if you go back to last week, you see how the, it begin, this section begins and ends with similar situations. It's now the sin of David 
that has brought judgment. But it's a bizarre one, isn't it? It's a puzzling, what a great way to end the book with such a puzzling, seemingly puzzling, uh, puzzling story. Because God is angry with Israel and it never says why. We're not given a reason. He then incites David. He basically tells, makes David do something that is sinful. Right? He has this, run, do you have this census? And then David does it. But the moment David does it, he realizes he's made a mistake, but it's too late. God is going to judge them for the sin that God incited him to. Right? We have to wrestle with this. Um, David then becomes repentant, but it's too late. The plague has killed 70,000 people. God stops short of destroying all of Jerusalem and stops at Arona's house, at his threshing floor. David offers sacrifices, and the book ends. So what, one thing you have to keep in mind when you're reading this story is it's not just a standalone story. It is intentionally placed at the end of the second book of Samuel, meaning the writer knew what he was doing. He puts it there because it's meant to be a conclusion. So you can never see it outside of its context within the book of Samuel. And I say book of Samuel because remember, both books were just one book originally, but they couldn't make scrolls big enough, not enough memory in those devices to have the entire book. So they had to split it into two scrolls. So one book of Samuel, it begins and ends very interestingly, and we're going to talk about that. The whole book of Samuel, what you are seeing, if you want a broad overview, is this. God is using monarchy to model the kingship of God. He says, here is what a monarchy looks like, and here is a way to show you how I am as a God. He's revealing himself through David. But he also is showing how he's going to restore all things through the monarchy, through his son. So there's messianic portions in. And as we do all of this, we see at the very end of the book, there is an intentional attempt by the writer to give you a very clear picture of who God is. And that may be frightening because the picture you're seeing right now may be like, who is this guy who is inciting people to sin and is behaving this way? But, and yet, this is exactly who the God of Israel is, and it's important we know it. And this is what you see, a profile of God. So we're going to see, it tells us three things about God's character, that he is dangerous, that he is good, and that he is a savior. Okay? We're going to walk through the passage, those three things. He is dangerous, good, and savior. So dangerous. In 2016 at University College in London, England, there was a study undertaken to, to determine how we manage stress as humans. And two groups were divided up. In the first group, they said, you have a 50% chance of receiving an electric shock in the next few minutes. The other group were told, you have a 100% chance. You're going to be shocked. Who signs up for this? So, and then they measure the stress levels to see which group is more stressed out. And they were surprised, but not really, shouldn't have been, I don't think, to see that the group that was definitely going to get zapped, they were less stressed than the group that wasn't sure if they were going to get stressed. And the reason is the human brain works funny. We want to be in control. If we know something is coming, we can endure it better, so we don't stress about it as much. The uncertainty is problematic for us. And as a result, what do we do? We try to order, tame, control everything, right? And that's a built-in function, apparently, in us. We're just insecure people, and we try to secure things ourselves. There's no peace uh, unless we know what the future is going to look like. And so when you read this part of this, this, the very first verse that says that God is angry, you don't know why, and then he makes David do a sin, perform a sin of some type, and then he punishes David for it, 
our gut reaction is to say, okay, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta think this through and I have to have a reason as to why God behaves this way. So we enter into the great debate. Sovereign God versus agency of humanity. If he can do what he wants with us, then how can we be held accountable for our actions? Why is David held accountable? So you see what we do. It's a good debate to have, but when we jump into that debate, what you're trying to do is trying to say, I need to tame God. I need to know exactly what he's going to do and why he does it, because I'm not sure if I can trust him with unlimited power, like our government. Right? Don't you see that happening now? There's a great fear. What do we do? We're worried about the government, and we want to control it. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm simply saying that's what we do as people. So, if that's the case, is that what we should be doing? Well, no, because the text itself doesn't answer that. Have you noticed how God and the writer are seem uninterested with your questions? Right? They don't stop and say, well, let me address your questions and make you feel comfortable in 21st century Canada. He doesn't say that. The writer seems uninterested in, in having an apology for God and, and exonerating him. Instead, what it does is it asks us to, to ponder the question that the disciples ponder when Jesus stills the storm. Remember, in, well, he does it a few, in various Gospels, but in Matthew 8, they say, what sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? And, and in Psalm 24, David himself will say, who is this king of glory? You and I, in this story, are being invited to ask the question, who is this? Who is he? It's an invitation to know him, not an invitation to, to understand him. I'll explain the difference later. And we're asked to, this is, we're being, and, but you see, it's a tendency, isn't it? Well, what, okay, before I get there, let me say this. What is he marveling at? What, what are the disciples marveling at when they see Jesus still the storm? We think it's his power. I don't think so. I think that's part of it. I think what, what the disciples marvel at is the freedom of God. Because God seems to bustle in the world unfettered. He can come in and out of your life and your heart anytime he wants. And we don't like that kind of freedom. That's why we don't let people just come over to our house anytime, right? There's visiting hours. And God is seemingly uncaged. There's one commentator, he's unfettered and dangerous, beyond our discernment, one commentator says. And this is terrifying, because if he can move with freedom in the world, that's, that's dangerous. You, you know, when you go to the zoo, it's nice to see the lions, right? Behind the glass. But when the lion says, I'm not going to be put behind glass, you have to reckon with the lion. And let's use that metaphor and go to C.S. Lewis's Aslan you've read the Chronicles of Narnia. C.S. Lewis, in the Chronicles of Narnia, he's, he refers to, to Aslan a number of times in, in very similar ways throughout the Chronicles. And in the first, well, first book, depending on how you read it, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Mr. Beaver is trying to explain who Aslan is to Susan, he says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And then, in the last book of the, of the Chronicles, in the last battle, Tyrion, a, a character in it, is trying to explain why he can't just make Aslan show up whenever he wants to a dwarf who's particularly bullheaded. And he says, Do you think that I keep him in my wallet, fools? Said Tyrion. Who am I that I could make Aslan appear at my bidding? He's not a tame lion. And Lewis is doing that on purpose. Because our mandated creation is to tame and subdue the world, we sometimes get the impression that our job is to also include God in that mandate. That we are here to tame God and understand him, 
We Protestant Reformed types are really good at that. We want to have a theology for everything, right? Because we want to know exactly why God does what he does. We don't deal well with mystery. We don't like it. So these things irk us. And yet, over and over, these passages, not just here, Exodus, when, when God hardens Pharaoh's hearts. Job, when he te- lets Satan have his way with Job. Aren't these puzzling? Well, good, they're supposed to be. Because he's not a tame lion. He's God. <laughs> if, God if, if, you, if you have a God who never dazzles you, never makes you feel a little bit uneasy, can I suggest he's not God? If he's infinite, I mean, I am in awe of people who have you know, decent musical ability, decent intelligence, decent athletes. Imagine what would happen if I met the perfect God. Surely he would do things that would puzzle me. And so it's consistent with Scripture what we're seeing here. So our response here is not, we're not being asked primarily to resist this untamed, dangerous God. You're not being asked to understand him. The Bible never says understand me. The Bible doesn't even tell you first and foremost, hear what I'm saying, first and foremost to obey him. It says trust him. That's the first thing. You must trust him because obedience without trust is not as useless. Trust is what he's demanding from us. And a great example of it, people who, another person who humbles me continually is an, a former missionary. I think she passed away a few years ago. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot. Many people have heard the name. Elizabeth Elliot had a oft very difficult life. Her husband, Jim, was killed by um, the very people he was ministering to in Ecuador. And at a very young, I think he was 29. So she had a tough life. And at one point in her life, she was at a, a farm in Wales. And um, she's watching them clean. If you're a farmer, forgive my language. I don't know how to say these things. They're giving the, the sheep some sort of a, a disinfectant bath, like some sort of shampoo that I think keeps the parasites off them or something. So there's a pool. And there's a ramp on each side. Sheep come in this way. A bunch of burly men, I think, maybe women too, I don't know, are there. And you grab these sheep and you kind of scrub them. You dunk them under the water. You, and the, the sheep must hate it, right? And she's watching this happen. And her response, Elizabeth Elliot, is this. I've had some experiences in my life which have made me feel very sympathetic to those poor sheep. There are times I couldn't figure out any reason for the treatment I was getting from my great shepherd, whom I trusted. And like these sheep, I didn't have a hint of an explanation. There will be no intellectual satisfaction on this side of heaven to that age-old question, why? But although I have not found intellectual satisfaction, I have found peace. And the answer I say to you is not an explanation, but a person. Jesus Christ, my Lord and my God. And through her suffering, through her suffering, she is then able to come to peace. And you're going to see in the next part why maybe God will actually bring suffering to you. Because you need it sometimes. Because sleeping people need to be roused awake. Maybe. So the first point is that God is dangerously free. Okay? That's one thing we can't escape in this passage. The second thing is he's good. And that means we, he wants us to trust him because he is trustworthy. And the passage actually shows us God uses this sinful thing, the census, and we'll explain why it's sinful, to transform David. And that's evidence of his goodness. But let's get there slowly. First, why is a census bad? Okay? And it must be bad because God doesn't like it. And even Joab, who we've talked about being one of the great scoundrels of the Old Testament, even he's like, David, take it easy. <laughs> no census. So what's so bad about a census? Well, there's political and spiritual reasons why they're problematic. The political and social, you know, in the, in the world answers are when a nation grows, censuses 
I've checked it. It's not sensei. It's senses, plural, which I hate saying. So censuses are necessary. They're necessary tools of nation building. Because when you have a nation that's too big, militia and local rule aren't enough. You need bigger organization, bigger army, and so on. So you need a census to kind of determine what resources you have in the, in the, in the nation to determine how you can defend it and keep it going and so on. But censuses were always, all, up until recent times, see now censuses are market research. People are selling your census data to corporations so that we know better how to take advantage of it. Right? But in the ancient world, it wasn't. A census was always a preliminary act for military draft and taxation. And so it was an exercise of domination. The moment it came around, people didn't want it because they knew their sons and their husbands were going to be taken soon, and they'd have to pay more money. And obviously that was problematic, and it was even more problematic because the only labor force an ancient king had that was large enough to administer a census was the army. So imagine, we're seeing it a little bit in this country already. Imagine that you're already having to do something you don't like, and then the person who comes to take that from you has a, rep, a weapon. So the army has to go out and do the census, and it looks like an invasion. So people hate censuses, always, all through history. So it's problematic politically, which is why I think Joab is saying, do I really have to do this, David? I'd rather fight a war than do a census, which is interesting. So... Politically, it's a problem, but spiritually, it's a larger problem. There's two things going on here spiritually. The first one, David himself in Psalm 20 will say, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of our, the Lord our God. But it's not really true of David all the time. And the census, when David, even at, the, at God's instigation, when he enacts it, what he is doing, and we know because Joab gives him the numbers of the men who are fit for military service, we know what he's doing is he's saying, I need to know what kind of an armed force I have so that I can do what I have to do. He's, is it an evidence of him trusting in his army as opposed to God? Because that's what a census is, right? Taking stock of an army. But even more insidious than that is the tendency that David is showing towards abstraction. Now, what I mean is by removing people from humanity and making them numbers. So, when there is a great tragedy, a war, we soften it and mask the impact of the suffering by body count. X amount of people. How many people died of COVID in Canada? 33, 34,000, something of that effect? That number, see, it's just a number, isn't it? It doesn't speak about those kids who lost dads and moms. And so abstraction, numbers tend to remove us from the actual suffering. And it's not just there. We do it not just in that area, we do it with poverty. We don't talk about the effects of the poverty-stricken people in our own city. We talk about unemployment numbers. And we talk about um, cost of living increases. And we, and we do this. And I know it's helpful. But you see what we're slowly doing is we're, it's now people. It's, not, it's now not people. It's numbers. Um, same thing with, with greed. It's not greed. Profit and loss and share prices and net worth. Interesting. Worth. And no comment on but when we go even further, and we then categorize people in the same way, right? Because we, we distance ourselves from them. So it's no longer Joe and Sally. I always say Joe and Sally. Sorry, Joe. It's just, but it's, I always say it's my default names. But, but people aren't that. We then say, no, they're liberal or Tory. They're pro or anti. And we distance ourselves. And what it allows us to do is no longer see them as people. 
So when David is numbering the people for a war, the question is, is he removing himself from his role as shepherd of, the, of, of Israel? And we're going to see why that's exactly what's happening in a minute. Because the, and then the moment he does it and Joab hands him the figures, in verse 10, it says he has a change of heart. His heart struck him, literally beat him. Okay? He realizes immediately he's done something wrong. And what does he say? Two things. The first thing is he confesses, right? He confesses, I've sinned, take away my sin, I've acted foolishly. So he confesses. But then something brilliant happens. When the plague comes and kills 70,000 of, of the Israelites, his response is, behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Now, these people who were numbers five verses earlier are now sheep. You see, David being thrust to allow himself to do exactly what he has been doing throughout the book, which is treat people as a means to an end, all of a sudden is struck by the fact of, these are my sheep. And then he acts like a shepherd. Let me take the beating for them. And the sin itself awakens him to, by grace, to his responsibility as a shepherd. So all of a sudden he's aware now that the covenant in being given to him was being done to make him a shepherd of the people. And why does he call it on him? This is, this is actually very important for the church. The reason David says, let it fall on me, is not because he's being self-righteous. He realizes he has an eternal covenant. Remember? 2 Samuel 7. God's never going to leave him. So if there is punishment to be had, let it fall on me, because though it'll hurt, it will not destroy me, because God said he'll never let me go. Let me bear it, because I have nothing to lose. But if these sheep lose something, they don't have this co- the, the, the covenant that I do. At least that's his mentality. So we as the church, when we enter into our world, if there is someone who is to be hammered in the world, our prayer should be saying, let us bear the burden. I'm not saying it's pleasant. But this is time and again what we're seeing kings are called to do. Remember last week, you have the image of the king on you. You are little kings in this world, meant to push the image of God outward. And so David is now awoken all of a sudden into being and behaving like a king. David knows this, and he knows God is good. See, he knows God is dangerous, and he knows he's good. And the reason we know he's good is because then he says, of the three choices, remember? Give me three options. This is a, who's old enough to remember, let's make a deal, Monty Python? Or Monty Hall. (laughs) Different thing. Monty Hall. I was little, but I remember it. And I always chose the one with a chicken in it. Anyway, if you've seen the show, you know what I'm talking about. Um, He's given three options. Three years of famine, three years, or three months of running from his enemies, or three days of pestilence. David, we could argue, you know, if he had run from God, would he have saved 70,000 lives if he had just he was under pressure? I don't, we don't need to argue that. The point is, what does he say? He says, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for, he is, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. David understood that God, though unpredictable, was merciful, as opposed to man who is very predictable but not merciful. So God under, David understood he would rather be in the hands of a God he cannot tame, but who promises mercy, than to be in the hands of these very predictable human, humans who he's had lots of experience with, because they're very predictable at not showing mercy. David shows incredible discernment in that moment. And precisely because God is untamed, this is the part we miss. The very fact, see, you don't want a God that is tame. And you say it, and you prove it, and not just us, Christians and non-Christians. Every time you pray, even if you're a skeptic, 
and you have those moments where something bad happens and you say, if there's somebody up there, you know, those moments. Every time you open your mouth to pray, you prove you want this dangerous God. Because when you pray as a Christian for your lost family and friends, you are asking for a God who is not restrained by human will. You're saying, I want you to go into that heart and wrench it out of its will. I want you to do, have your way with him. Don't worry about rules. Don't worry about borders. Break that person's heart for you. That's what you want. You don't want a God who's tame. You want the God who is unpredictable. When you pray for healing, what you're saying is, God, break the rules of biology. Break them. Make your surgeons smarter than they are, more clever and more skillful than they are. You're asking for God to not be tame, skeptic or not. When you're praying for a job or any circumstance in your life, for a government, for a situation, what you're saying is, God, don't be constrained. You actually may be afraid of this dangerous God, but it's the only God you really want and need. And it's only because Aslan is untamed that he can save the Pevensies and Narnia, and only because God is untamed is the only reason that he can save David. Because he's not constrained by your thoughts, your will, or your opinions. Isn't it, imagine how freeing it would be to actually not care what people think. Wouldn't it be? Not because you're uncompassionate, because that's me, right? I'm really good at not caring what people think, because I just don't care about what you, th- what you have to say. That's humans, right? We think we're being compassionate, but it's not. We're actually being the opposite. God, however, can say, I'm not concerned with what you're saying, not because it's not valid, but because I know better than you. And I'm going to make it better. Just watch. Just wait. Ponder this. So he is good. So he's untamed, but he's good. But now, lastly, he's a savior. Now, let's think about this. Why does the book end like this? What is he doing? What's his writer doing? Writer, editor, call it what you want if you're a scholar. Why did they end it this way? Well, let's think about how the book started. I'm sure you all remember exactly what my first sermon was in this. (laughs) Uh, It's on Hannah, right? So Hannah starts out 1 Samuel. Now, Hannah, if you recall, you can listen to it, and I'm sure I say it there too. Hannah is not accidentally the starting point because Israel is coming out of the period of the judges and is into judges because Samuel and Eli are judges. So in this time of the end of the waning of the period of judges, Hannah shows up. She is married to Elkanah, a man with a glorious history. If you know, they, were, they say who his family was. So he's got a good pedigree in his past. But because of her infertility, Hannah has no future. This is her concern, why she prays for a son. And Hannah is a microcosm. She's a symbol of Israel. They have an illustrious past with the Red Sea and the conquest with Joshua. But because of the period of judges and forsaking God, they have no future. So Hannah shows up as a symbol of all Israel so that when a baby is put into her womb, it is hope in the womb of Israel, right? Symbolic. And Hannah brilliantly understood, I've said this, I say it last week or I say it in, my, in the young adults group, I don't remember. Women only show up in the, in the Old Testament here and there, but when they do, man, you've got the best parts because they're the most faithful people. Jezebel is that. You know, not all. But, but Hannah, do you see what she's doing? She understands exactly what we're talking about in the last chapter. She says, He's the Lord of hosts. He's the first person in the Bible to refer to God as Lord of hosts, this sovereign God, Lord of everything. In her prayer, she mentions the covenant name of God, Yahweh, more times than any other person in Scripture in a prayer or a psalm, anything. 18 times she refers to him in that way. Hannah understands if there is to be hope for her, and of course by proxy for Israel, there must be a God who 
can create something from nothing because there's nothing in her womb. So he must be the God of Genesis 1 that can create ex nihilo from nothing. So she prays to this God. And the entire book of Samuel is chronicling and revealing to you the God who creates from nothing and uses nothings of kings to make something. And the prayer of Hannah that this God would be unfettered and would break biology to save her dignity and so on, and then Israel as well, is the God who then David professes final, finally faith in at the end. He says, if there's going to be hope for me, it's not in the hands of man, it's not in the hands of politics or philosophy, it's in the hands of the living God. So let me go in his hands, come what may. And so the book intentionally ends with this idea that they wanted a God who was unfettered, as terrible as that can be at times, they have him. And this is a large part of what the book is saying. But there's a lot more going on. And this is where we'll start to close. Say that. So the plague comes. God sends this plague. And it extends through Israel. But before it hits the center of Jerusalem, he calls an end to it. says it's enough. And he stops short. It seems to be in Jerusalem, but not quite into the center of it, at Arona's uh, threshing floor. This is where the angel stops. God then says, now go and buy that land or do whatever you have to do with that land but build an altar and worship me, sacrifice to me. Now, one of the things that you, if you I don't know if it says it in the, your Bibles or not, but if, you, if, you know, if you're paying attention to other books of the Bible, you'll know this. Solomon builds a temple on this threshing floor that is bought here. This, is, this spot in, in 1 Chronicles 21 is said to be Solomon goes, and this is the spot that David said, or Solomon says, this is where the temple will be built on. So what is happening? We're being shown that, remember, the book of Samuel is an end, but not the end, because it leads inexorably to Golgotha, to the cross. That's where it's leading us. But because the temple is there, we then see this is the foundation of something. So let's think now. It's pointing us to this temple that's going to be built and to the foundation of it. But what is the foundation of this temple other than the bricks or mortar or stone or whatever it was? This is what it is. This is the point, at this moment, that little spot where they build a temple, at Arona's floor, is the moment where mercy and judgment meet. Because judgment comes, and it is set aside by God. So the temple is then built on the very spot where judgment meets mercy. It is built on the very spot where humanity comes, confesses, repents, and sacrifices and worships. That's the center. That's the foundation it's built on. It's built on the place of hope. Because that's why David is worshiping. It's the only hope for us is the mercy amidst the judgment. It is the place of faith because it's the place where you worship and trust and adore a God who you can't control. That is faith. Because you and I are all putting our lives into the hands of a God you have not physically seen. It's faith, like it or not. Not unreasonable faith, obviously, or else I wouldn't be a pastor. But it's faith. And so the temple is built not just on this piece of stone, but upon all these things and all these promises. And then when Christ shows up later, and he, sh- he starts to refer to himself repeatedly as the temple, you see what he's saying? He's saying he is the venue. He is the location where judgment and mercy meet, where the judgment of God comes on sinful man. See, because if you were to enter the temple, you can only do it if you're perfect. And the only reason you can enter the temple is because somebody has made you perfect, because you're not. And Christ says, I am that. I am the temple, because I am the venue of sacrifice, but he's also the sacrifice. 
So he is a rich theology of the temple here. We could delve into which we can't do it right now. So all of this, it ends with this hope. The book of Samuel ends with hope, saying if there is any hope for humanity, it's not in this monarchy, but it's in the king of God, heaven. That's the only hope for Israel. And then it gives you this tease of a temple and this, this lingering idea of this Messiah, this, this David that will come down the road. And that's where it ends. That may not be satisfactory. You may want more conclusion. But this is one book, 56. And it leads us into that next part. Lastly, I will say this. Today, here we are in this moment. We're at the same spot where you and I, regardless of your situation in life, and everybody here is in different circumstances, you're in the spot where the Spirit is technically here. He's here. And you have the same option before you that David did. Will you resist this king? Will you resist and say, I don't trust him, I'm not going to do it? Or will you repent? And this is the moment. These are the moments. When, God, when Christ is pronounced, we have the opportunity to reenact what David did. As Christians, we do it again and reconfess and recommit ourselves. As skeptics, we come and say, yeah, I have to come to terms with this. I have to come to terms with a world that I can't control, though I try. And yet I feel like someone's in control of it. And this is the gospel that says that there is one in control. And that one who is, is the one who, who died for you. He's the one who came and said, you can't live unless you can get into the temple. So I will be that point of justice and mercy for you. And this is where Samuel is leading us to. It's pointing us, as I said, inexorably, this step, this monarchy leads you to Golgotha. It leads us to the cross. That's where it leads. And then we're stuck at the cross asking, will you resist or repent? And that's where we are now. I say, repent. There's no other option. There's no other option. Every knee will bow. It's going to bow. And as C.S. Lewis again brilliantly says, some people often say, well, I'll just repent on my deathbed. Lewis is brilliant again. He says, there's no sense in claiming uh, some privilege or congratulations for, for bowing when it's become impossible to stand. When you can't stand, don't say you bowed by yourself. Listen now. Bow before the Lord.